The Bible is often seen as a Jewish book from Israel. In fact, its origins have as much to do with the ancient Near East. The Bible would not exist without the emergence of writing, a signal achievement of the Babylonians. Hello, my name is Christine Leon. In this episode of Thinking Things Through with Ron Chung, he introduces his latest book, Ancient Near East in the Bible, Treasures from the Metropolitan Museum, with Danieli and I. In this volume, Dr. Chung connects the dots to show the significance of ancient religious beliefs through biblically relevant artifacts from the Met Museum. Listen to our conversation. Hello, Ron. Hi, Danny. How are you? Hi. Hi. Pretty good. Good. Okay, Ron. Let's begin with you. Um, how did this book come about? Well, some 15 years ago, I began to conduct guided tours uh, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art for Christians interested in the connections between the artifacts there in the museum, as well as uh, on uh, other things that they, they read about and their Christian faith. Now, one of the people who came and uh, was a longtime student called Danny Lee from New York City. And over time, she he showed promise and a deep interest in my research. So I wanted to train a lay person to lead these theological tours, and he was in a way my guinea pig to see whether that was possible. So I invited him to co-lead some of the tours with me, and the field notes I provided became more substantial over time. By the time I finished my PhD in 2009 and started publishing several academic type books, I began to wonder about: Is it possible to write a guidebook? To the museum for ordinary people, non-academics. So in 2015, this idea was conceived, and this would involve taking photographs of artifacts, inserting a floor plan of the gallery, and consulting various theological books. And I recruited Danny to learn and contribute to the book so he can gain confidence when he leads the actual tours. Now, the original book was um, a paperback, six by nine inches, and so it's a limited size. And then, of course. Um, in about what a year and a half ago, I met you, Christine, on the Malaysian Facebook group, and your curiosity and capacity to understand things of science and religion impressed me a great deal. And I wanted to find out how to uh, explain Christianity and archaeology, history and science stuff I do to a layperson of another religion. Now you are a lifelong Taoist, so that was an interesting thing. Furthermore, you then told me that you can improve on some of the. Um, communication strategies by having visuals. And that's where the infographics came in. I saw the very first one and I was sold completely. And I said, this changed the nature of um, this work. And eventually I decided to publish it as a separate book, a different book, this hardcover, larger format book with full color illustrations, photographs, and more importantly, the infographics, as you'll see. Oh, thank you. Danny, what about you? Uh, what would you like to add to how you became involved? Uh, thanks. Um, as Ron stated, I tagged along about 15 years ago while I was a volunteer at the Met, uh, membership office actually at the Met during that time. And at first, Ron was uh, exclusively, exclusively uh, leading the tours. Um, initially, they were quite long, but uh, where he covered more than like around 15 artifacts, which is quite daunting to do. Um, at times, he signaled for me to take over well, whenever he felt he was losing his voice, but I was such a coward that time that, that I flatly refused. I just ran away into a corner. Um, but afterwards, together, we refined the tours and uh, slowly started to put together 
some research. And over the years, I felt more confident uh, in leading it more and more of the tours that included not only the A&E, but also the Persian, uh, the Egyptian, the Greco-Roman, and even the Human Evolution Tour at the American Museum of Natural History. And then in around uh, 2015, we started to uh, write the A&E book, which was a massive undertaking. Uh, so, yeah, that's how I got involved. And I'm curious, um, Christine, how did you get involved with this book? Well, as uh, Ron stated, I had the opportunity to contribute to his earlier book, World's Oldest Bible, that was published last year. And when that project finished, my interest in religion, science, and the human experience with the divine intensified. The biggest takeaway for me while working on the first book is the importance of geography and history and how they impacted the exposure that we have to God. Now, my involvement was timely as I have two very curious kids. They're 12 and 8, and they ask me a lot of questions about the world we live in and how God is involved in our lives. This opportunity has replenished my ammunition to nurture their curious minds by checking the facts and cultivating spiritual integrity in a theological safe space. Now, growing up in a Taoist household, I would ask many questions as a child as we have many rituals to observe and practice. And quite often, I've been told to shut up because my parents simply don't have the answers. Now, I imagine that there are many others who may have the same questions as me, even as an adult. Uh, you know, Christine, uh, that reminds me of how I used to ask my, my parents annoying questions about the faith. Uh, like, how did the world populate when Adam and Eve had only two sons? And, and you know, similar questions like that. But, uh, you know, later, as, as I grew older, I, I'd ask more questions about the Bible and certain doctrines at church. And most of the time I was, I was rebuffed. And, and I remember one time that uh, I, was, you know, I was speaking with my pastor and, um, you know, during a private conversation, um, he was responding to one of my questions and his response really puzzled me. And I asked him to clarify and just give me like a Bible reference. And he kept on prodding it. And but he immediately like stopped talking with me and he turned literally turned his back on me. So. So, yeah, you're you're not alone in terms of dealing with uncomfortable questions about God and the Bible. And there's not many opportunities or, or places to find theological safe spaces, as you mentioned. But sorry, sorry, please continue, Christine. Yeah. So after we wrapped up the world's oldest Bible, I asked Ron if there was another book that um, he would like me to work on. And Ron, you mentioned the Ancient Near East book. So although I'm not much of a history buff, when I read about the A&E religions, I realized how similar, similar they were to my own faith, Taoism. That's when I decided that I wanted to be involved so that I could learn more about the A&E religions. And through the process of creating infographics and designing the book, I came across many parallels between any religious motifs and Taoism. Thank you for sharing that. Now, Danny, tell us about some of uh, your thoughts while you were researching uh, for this book with me. Sure. Um, I think one of the most challenging aspects or, or parts of writing the book and leading the tours was discovering so many uh, parallels of uh, the ancient Near East beliefs and the Bible. Um, I think one thing that particularly comes to mind is one of the artifacts of the Met. It's number 16 in the book. Uh, is a fragment of a literary, tab literary tablet from the 7th and 6th century BCE 
that describes the Babylonian myth of the great flood. It describes a hero named Natrahasis who is told to build a large boat and to carry animals onto it to escape the wrath of the god Enlil, who will send a great flood to wipe out all of humankind. Sounds familiar. Um, if you compare the Atrahasis flood narrative alongside the Noah narrative in the book of Genesis, uh, the similarities are, are quite striking. And also the famous epic of Gilgamesh also mentions the flood account and its survivor Utnatachim, who had attained immortality. Uh, this goes to show how that the Hebrews and other AME cultures shared a common theological vocabulary at that time. Yeah, um, actually, Danny, in fact, the Chinese also have a flood myth. We have several. And it is understood that the success of this hero in the story led to the establishment of the Xia dynasty, which is the first dynasty of China. Wow. I mean, that, that's quite interesting and fascinating uh, to hear. And, uh, you know, going back to, to the parallels, and that's just a few of the many other parallels. Uh, of uh, ancient Near East writings and the Bible that I came across during my research. And at first, uh, you know, it was very jarring for me as a believer when I came across these parallels, but it helped me to think more deeply about the nature of God's revelation and how the Bible came about and why it was written. So uh, on to you, Ron. Uh, in what manner is the ancient Near East in the Bible? Oh, good question. I, I was raised as a Christian, so the Bible has always been very close to my heart. And in fact, when I was young, I won uh, many Bible memorization competitions in Malaysia. This sounds strange to a lot of people today, but we used to memorize a lot of our Bibles, different versions even. And in fact, I became the national champion for Bible quiz hosted by the Youth for Christ organization. Now, by the time I entered mission service in 1990, I was fully aware of Christianity's very strong links to Egypt and Mesopotamia in the Bible. So by 1996, when I embarked on theological study at Princeton, I realized that at the doctoral level, biblical studies include learning the histories, the languages, and the philosophies of the ancient Near East, something we don't think about at church, and we're not taught at Sunday school very much, but uh, that was so evident at, at seminary. So the cultures in the ancient Near East, we call them Sumeria, Arcadia, Assyria and Babylonia, they gave rise to the wheel, to writing, and to mathematics. It's really hard to think of a single region that made such immense contributions to the human experience. Just imagine life without wheel. Imagine life without writing. Imagine that mathematics did not exist. So that's, that's quite an impressive um, achievement by these people in this group. So when we read of certain rituals and practices and even names of spiritual beings in the Bible, we now know a great deal about them from the museum artifacts. And some examples for Christians who may be uh, thinking about this, the idea of cherubims and seraphims, the idea of seals, names of the various kings and the cities of Assyria and Babylonia, uh, even of gods, Baal, El, Asherah, and of course, most famously for many people studying the Old Testament, the idea of the Messiah in the Old Testament, one King Cyrus. In fact, um, I happen to have a replica, full-size replica of what is called the Cyrus Cylinder. I just want to quickly show you here. This is totally unscripted, but there we go. I managed to get this in Tehran in 2013. And this discovery in 19th century so strongly affirmed the biblical text of the book of Ezra. So again, uh, archaeology played such a major role. And during my many visits to the Metropolitan Museum, I saw the connections between some of the artifacts and the Bible itself. 
And this led me to think about how, in fact, the ancient Near East is found in the Bible. Wow. Okay. So, Ron, what can we expect from the book? Well, um, I'm going to mention a summary of the first four chapters, and Danny will explain uh, chapter five. In chapter one, very simply, we introduce the museum as a crucial part of the Christian heritage regarding God's revelation. Christians believe that God revealed knowledge to the human race, and the metropolitan is part of this forgotten spiritual heritage that when we say God reveals, it reveals to media, it reveals to science, to history, to literature, to poetry, all the human writings. You may even say things like the wheel, mathematics, and writing. These are parts of God's revelation because without it, we will not have the Bible we have today. We will not have this recording on Zoom. Now, chapter two, it describes the geohistory of the ancient Near East, tracing the biblical Abraham's migration from Mesopotamia to Canaan to produce the Abrahamic face of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. From this, um, ancient Near East archaeology shows that the biblical texts were written and then edited again and again, continuously repurposed to meet the spiritual needs of each and every place. And of course, we see that in reality every Sunday when a preacher preaches. He doesn't just read the text. He reads the text, and then he analyzes it and uses it to apply to the current needs of the uh, time and place that he's at, in this case, for me, New York City, 21st century. Now, chapter 3 summarizes the Canaanite gods of the ancient East. There are tons and tons of them. We take a handful to the most famous ones to explain so that it's not so uh, strange when you go to the museum itself. Chapter 4 describes the 1928 discovery of the Ugarit Library. These texts cast light on several curious statements of the Old Testament. Some of you who have read the Old Testament will know there are many occasions you read the text and you go, okay, I just read it. It's in English. I understood the words, but I can't make a tale of it. Uh, in the Old Testament itself, this discovery made a huge difference, and it led to improvements in the translation and interpretation of the Bible. And so, now, Danny, tell us about Chapter 5 and your favorite artifact among the Sure. Yeah. Well, um, well, chapter five showcases archaeological artifacts from the ancient Near East Gallery at the Met, uh, with specific references uh, uh, to their biblical connections and invocations. Uh, we chose each artifact that provided physical evidence for religious practices and beliefs during the Old Testament period, which adds to our biblical knowledge. Uh, some of these uh, artifacts remind us where our current uh, Christian extra-biblical beliefs uh, draw their inspiration from where they're inheriting, adopting, and adapting theologies of the ancient Near East constantly. And uh, looking back, I, I think my favorite artifact is number 26 in the book, which is the inscribed cylinder uh, that describes the building ac activities of King Nebuchadnezzar II, who was uh, the king of Babylon. And uh, I was recently conducting a private tour of the ancient Near East galleries with my small group at church. And one of the members who was actually attending seminary right now got really, really excited when he saw the artifact and they pointed it out to him uh, because it directly tied in with a key biblical figure in history. Uh, because uh, as everyone, everyone knows, King Nebuchadnezzar II, who plays a prominent role uh, in the books of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the historical books like Second Kings and Second Chronicles. And he um, was also the king who was responsible for attacking the kingdom of Judah and capturing Jerusalem in 597 uh, BCE. And then 10 years later, around uh, 
586 BCE, he's the one who, who destroyed the temple and led many Jews into exile in Babylon. Well, I, I have to say among the various artifacts, that, that also ranks among my top three of the um, artifacts I've got in the book. Well, thank you for sharing that. Now, Christine, show us the book and share with us your design inspiration for the cover. Uh, so when I was asked to design the cover of this book, I looked for inspiration from the ancient Near East itself and decided to include three significant elements that represented the geohistory of this region. And they are religion, writing, and colors. Each signifies the social cultural relationship of the people. Let's begin with the incantation bowl you see on the front cover. It is also known as a demon bowl, devil trap bowl, or magic bowl. It is a form of early protective magic found in the ancient Near East. The bowls were buried face down and were meant to capture demons. They were commonly placed under thresholds, courtyards, and in the corner of the homes of recently deceased and also in cemeteries. Now, talking about parallels, when I was growing up as a Taoist, I remember hearing about the practice of catching evil spirits in a vessel. It could be a pot, bowl, or bottle. The Taoist priest would be invited to perform a ritual to remove an evil spirit, and a vessel is used to house the evil spirit once captured. It is then sealed with a yellow talisman, with spell written on it with red ink to seal it. In the book, you will read that incantation bowls are used in the same manner. Magic words were written on the inside of the bowl to trap the spirit once it is placed face down. Many of these bowls were found in archaeological sites today in Iraq and Iran. Well, well I, I just find that really, really fascinating, Christine, because, uh, you know, that, that custom found found its way all the way to Asia, although it could be all the, you know, the other way around. Uh, maybe it originated in the Far East first and then made its way into the ancient Near East. You know? So further research has to be done on that. Um, I think Western Christianity has been so influenced by, by Greek and Western philosophy. So we don't really have any equivalent to prayer bowls or trapping demons or evil spirits, um, even though there are traditions of, of exorcisms. Um, so again, I just find it really, really fascinating that there are some similar traditions and religious beliefs in both Mesopotamia around the 6th and 7th century CE and in the Asian religions such as Taoism. Next, if you look closely, you will see cuneiform script on the background of the cover. I chose this to represent writing as literacy is one of the most defining characteristics of Mesopotamian civilization. This script was used for religious, literary, and administrative text back in the day. The scribes and writers during biblical times would have used scripts derived from cuneiform script in their writings. You know, speaking of writing, I, I can't help but um, remind myself and remind um, our readers that writing has long been associated with power and magic. Because I remember when I was in Mongolia, the story of Chinggis Khan was that he saw writing on pieces of paper. This was the 13th century. And there was no written script for the um, Mongolian language. He was fascinated. He realized his generals told him, by this piece of paper and some markings, they can transmit information through great distances without the person having to be there. 
That so fascinated him that he determined to find a way for the Mongolians to have a script of their own. And today they have it. They borrowed it from the Uyghurs. And along with mathematics, the act of recording thought on things that can be passed on through time and space allowed the past to shape the future. So this is how important mathematics and writing is by preserving ideas long after the person is no more, after it's died. So just a reminder for all of us here and for you guys who are reading this book, the very act of writing this book is a leaving of a legacy that will you know, post-date all of us as we move on in life. Christine. So lastly, I just love the color of this book, but there is a reason why I chose this color. It is called Tyrian Purple. Now, Tyrian Purple is a reddish purple natural dye and the name Tyrian refers to Tyre in Lebanon. This dye is produced by several species of snails called murex. This color was chosen to represent the Phoenicians. They lived in the cities of Byblos, Sidon, and Tyre. Their prized natural resources were the cedars of Lebanon and murex shells. The pigment was expensive and complex to produce and items colored with it became associated with power and wealth. It has been suggested that the name Phoenicia itself means land of purple. Yeah, you know, Christine, it's, it's so interesting that the color purple has always been associated with royalty, power, and wealth for, for many centuries, not just in the ancient Near East, but throughout uh, European history as well. And I remember one um, a Roman emperor who comes to mind um, named uh, Emperor Aurelian in the third century CE uh, famously wouldn't allow his wife uh, to buy a shawl made from Tyrian purple because it literally cost its weight in gold. And then later in the 16th century uh, England, um, Queen Elizabeth uh, I didn't allow anyone except uh, close members of the royal family uh, to wear it. So, so like you state, the the purple fabric used to be so outrageously expensive that only rulers uh, could afford it. And I believe, I think more than uh, 9,000 mollusks uh, were, were needed just to create one gram, believe it or not, of Tyrian purple, which is amazing. That's why it was so expensive. And since only wealthy rulers could afford to buy and wear the color, it became associated with the, with the imperial classes of Rome, Egypt, and Persia. And also the, the color purple also became to represent spirituality and holiness because the ancient emperors, kings and queens uh, that wore the color were often thought of as gods or descendants of gods. Yeah, just found it really interesting. Thanks for sharing. Okay, final question. Ron, what do you wish for your readers to take away from this book? The Greek philosopher Socrates famously stated that an unexamined life is not worth living. Now, I've often told my students and, and remind myself that for those of us who believe in God, it is wise to think things through theologically. Now, this book then is about how the ancient Near East civilizations shaped the self-understanding of Christians today. It's an invitation for Christians to examine our geohistorically inherited beliefs with spiritual integrity and for others to eavesdrop in on a conversation. Thank you. And Danny, what about you? Well, um, I see the book as not just another reference book about the Bible. Um, what I really want people to get out of the book is that it serves as a practical guide, especially for small group leaders and Bible study teachers at church. And um, I, I want church leaders or even regular churchgoers to actually take the book with them 
if they ever visit the Ancient Near East Galleries at the Met in New York and check out the artifacts themselves and immerse themselves into the world of the Ancient Near East and see what the biblical writers and characters of the level saw and thought about. Um, so if you take the time to really carefully read and really digest the material in the book, I really firmly believe that you will come out with a deeper and richer understanding of the Bible. Great. And um, Christine, how about you? Well, I think this book is not just for Christians and just about anyone can learn so much about the ancient Near East from this book. And I would like to say to the readers to keep an open mind and understand how the past shaped the religious beliefs of today. Okay, thank you so much, Ron and Danny, for sharing your thoughts about how this book came together. To our viewers and listeners, you can buy our book from Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and Lulu.com. We hope that you enjoy the book. 